This is a Federal News Network podcast. It might be the great deliberative body, but much of what the Senate deliberates on is pretty mundane, such as the nomination for Undersecretary of Agriculture for Marketing and Regulatory Programs. What do senators think about all of this? We get some insight from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And, well, what do they think of that type of work? Well, it's interesting because a lot of people are actually frustrated with the process right now. For example, even though we're more than an a year and a half into the Biden administration, there are still plenty of vacancies in these key positions. There's no deputy director of the Office of Personnel Management. President Biden recently withdrew his nominee for controller at OMB. Key positions at the Social Security Administration haven't even had their nominees named yet. And as Federal News Network has pointed out in figures from the Partnership for Public Service, it's taken the average Biden nominee, not including judges, 127 days to get Senate confirmation. That is up from 115 days during the Trump administration, and it's only been getting longer since the Obama administration. And if you look way back, during President George W. Bush's first year in office, 75% of his nominees had been confirmed in the first year. By comparison, it's only about 55% for the Biden administration. This process just keeps getting longer and longer, and then it eats into the time that senators actually have to develop legislation. Yeah, so you can't really blame party politics necessarily because the Senate is controlled more or less by the Democrats now. So there must be some other factor going on. Right. It's a combination of a lot of different things. And you're right. It's not a partisan thing in this case uh, because it's been getting longer under both administrations, uh, Republican and Democrat. Part of it is that it takes longer for administrations to get their nominees to the Senate. Also, there are simply more people that require now the Senate to approve them. And then, of course, just the Senate, the greatest deliberative body in the world, takes a long time itself to get through all of this. And what you hear on Capitol Hill here a lot from senators, and they'll, they'll mention this in floor speeches a lot as well as in the halls, is they just don't have any time they feel to really create new policies, to create legislation. Part of the reason that many of them actually came to Congress in the first place. And of course, there's obviously a huge amount of importance to what they're doing when they uh, confirm these administration nominees. And also a big part of their job is, of course, confirming judges, which they still move fa- through fairly quickly, although that also takes a lot of time. But it's it's an amazing how much floor time is actually spent on just these two things with confirming nominees and judges that people don't really realize, I don't think. And in the meantime, that's going to be set aside for the immediate moment because the lame duck session is about to come up. And what's your anticipation of what's going to happen during that period? Well, it's interesting, given that all that needs to be done, this could actually be one of the busiest lame duck sessions in close to a decade. You have Florida lawmakers pressing to make sure that funding for Hurricane Ian relief gets to their state and the damages are still being added up. The defense bill will likely take up most of the time. Lawmakers have proposed hundreds of amendments as they usually do. And with that funding deadline of December December 16th, while it may seem far away right now, once you get through the election, before you know it, it's going to be coming on us just as fast as it always seems to do every year. So they're going to have to do another short-term spending bill, which many lawmakers don't want, or more likely, they will try to actually, believe it or not, pass the spending bill for the coming fiscal year that they're supposed to be doing. Uh, that would include a lot of different things, renewal of federal flood insurance, it's got a big water bill. 
bill. There is funding, of course, for Ukraine, among other things. They are hoping that they can finish all of this before Christmas. We'll see what happens. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. You can believe what one wants in the polls now. It's hard to know who's going to control Congress after the election, after the lame deck is over next year when they are seated. But maybe the House is poised to become Republican-controlled what would be the ramifications across a variety of issues? Well, there are a lot of potential changes that would happen there, and uh, the Republicans have signaled many of them already. Uh, as you alluded to, many GOP lawmakers feeling fairly confident right now that they are going to take the House. We'll have to see what happens in the Senate. But if that does happen, one area that is a big area where Republicans could make changes is with energy. Uh, you constantly have heard, uh, not only during the campaign, but uh, all through this year, Republicans holding news conference and complaining basically about the Biden administration's energy policies, which Republicans feel has gone too far in the direction of green energy initiatives. So one of the things that we're going to likely see is that within the Energy and uh, Commerce Committee, the House Republicans on that committee, they want to shift the direction of energy policy and, if possible, somehow pull back on some of these administration policies that they're starting to move forward with. Uh, the New York Times recently outlined how lobbyists from the natural gas industry are already having discussions with Republican lawmakers, seeing how they can change things. Uh, many Republicans, of course, disagree with this move away from natural gas, for example, giving low and moderate income households rebates worth thousands of dollars to put in things like electric-powered water heaters, electric stoves, anything basically electric, and the uh, natural gas industry obviously concerned about that. Also, there's the matter of the funding for Ukraine. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said there should not be a blank check for assistance there, so a lot of concern there among uh, Republicans as well as Democrats on the Senate side about what will happen there. I still think that Ukraine aid will likely get through in the uh, lame duck session, but there's a lot of other things that they, they could be tacking on to the uh, overall legislation as well. But I think we'll see, of course, committee changes potentially if, if that happens with the Republicans taking over. Plenty of changes could be taking place in the House if, in fact, the Republicans do win on November 8th. Right. So on energy, it might crash the investments people have made in hamster treadmills. <laughs> right. But if the House does become Republican, there's still the issue of whether the majority and in the Senate would be veto-proof. And that would seem to maybe mitigate more towards stalemate than reversal of what we've seen. Exactly. And I think that's what we're likely going to see. Now, we'll see what happens with the Senate. And by the way, the Senate may not actually be settled on November 8th. In fact, it probably won't be. There's a very good chance that there will be a Senate runoff race in Georgia, and that would push that back to December. So you would basically get that situation that we had uh, two years ago, where we don't really know who controls the Senate for quite a while. Um, but if it does end up in this stalemate situation, as you point out, I think what the the Republicans will likely try to do in the House is make political points on a variety of things. And as they do that, that can kind of grind the gears and slow things down. They want to basically hold back on a lot of the spending that the Democrats have already pushed through. And they want to make sure that, that more of that doesn't happen. But again, it's potentially uh, veto proof. So we'll see what happens. And security has come up again in the Capitol. And I know you and I have talked about this ever since the January 6th, 2021 events. So much repercussion that did physically button up the Capitol. And now there was a guy there the other day who had guns in the back of his van. 
Right. This has been happening more and more frequently. You get people from various parts of the country who decide, for whatever reason, that they're going to come to Washington, D.C. and send some kind of message. This is one of several incidences that occurred on the perimeter of the Capitol grounds, a van with uh, several firearms inside. Fortunately, they actually had a canine unit come out and sniff it out, and then, then they made a rest. But this comes after a man set his car on fire and then shot himself a short distance from where this incident happened last week. Last year, there was a man in a truck who claimed to have explosives. He actually parked it on the sidewalk in front of the Library of Congress. Fortunately, that ended without incident. And then you have uh, even more serious incidents where a year ago, more than a year ago, there was a deadly attack at one of the actual areas where cars can come into the Capitol at a checkpoint. The person rammed into a police officer, Capitol police officer, and he was killed. So this is an ongoing situation. And the new Capitol police chief, Tom Manger, has quietly ramped up a lot of the security training change some things. I've noticed that when lawmakers, for example, hold a news conference here on the House side, on the outside of the Capitol, there's now closer monitoring by Capitol police officers, and they'll often put up those bike rack type fences so that people cannot get into the perimeter. Uh, by the way, threats against lawmakers, as we've talked about in the past five years, they've really soared. Actually, 10 times the level that they used to be. They had more than 9,500 threats recorded against lawmakers last year, and there's no doubt there's been more that we haven't heard about while lawmakers out, are out campaign, campaigning. They have actually also added Capitol Police officers in some of the congressional districts to try to address the situation. Well, hopefully things will settle down, but I don't know. That's a pretty tough uh, wicket to get around. It really is. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your docket. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took 
um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, this, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of 
deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.